Mike, Mike and I, pre-pandemic, we, um, we used to play squash together uh, semi-often. And uh, that started when I was his intern. It started uh, when I was 18. And he, he took me to... The first time I ever played squash, Mike took me. I'd, um, uh, and he absolutely annihilated me. And then for, for a couple of years, he just kept beating me. And I am very competitive and very arrogant. And so being beaten on a squash court, particularly by Mike, um, you know, just used to re really rile me up. And he, he knows how to wind me up and press my buttons. I'm sure you've got some friends like that. So I used to do my nut, and I just couldn't, um, I couldn't figure out how to play better. And then there was a turning point when we went with a, a little group of us, and we did sort of a round-robin tournament. So we got to watch each other play. And for the first time, I was able to sit up in the balcony and watch Mike play somebody else and just observe. Because normally when I'm in the middle of a game, I'm sweating and the squash ball's coming at you and you're getting frustrated and he's kind of, he knows how to get in my head. And so I really struggled to work out his strategies. But uh, once I was up in the balcony, I was looking down, watching him play somebody else and I got to see, oh, this is, this is, his, this is his game plan, basically, right? And his game plan on squash is that you just stand in the middle of the court, which is not very big, dominate that strategic location, and then make the other person do all the running. And so I thought, if I could just, if I can now just break that game plan, maybe I'll have a chance. And, and, and what happened is not that suddenly I annihilated him, but I got better and better and better. And I began to, to realize if I can get him off that position in the middle and get him to, you know, run two or three meters, then after two or three meters, he's virtually having a heart attack. And, and I can beat him. I can at least win a point or two. Um, and what I, I was just thinking about that earlier because I was thinking it's, it was only when I stepped out of the game and I wasn't playing just for a bit and I got to observe him playing somebody else. I got to observe my enemy playing somebody else that I was able to figure out his strategies and then work out how I can overcome them. And what I want to suggest we do together this morning is something similar Life is not a squash game, but it's kind of something that we're in the thick of. And we have an enemy as well. We have an enemy who's called Satan, and he is out to get us. And yes, in this analogy, Mike is Satan. Um, he's, he's out to get us. And sometimes in the middle of it, it's really hard to know how is he playing, what are his strategies. We can find ourselves in the middle of the game, in the middle of the game of life, as it were, feeling as Christians like all we're doing is hanging in there. We're just trying desperately not to lose. We're trying to desperately just to stay in the game. And isn't the whole point more than that, wasn't it, that we were meant to be thriving rather than simply surviving? And so for, for a moment, I want us to pause the game, step out of the craziness of it all, and then look back in and observe, and wouldn't it be wonderful if we could watch our enemy, Satan, playing somebody else, somebody who beats him, and see the strategies of the enemy and see how to overcome them? Well, that's what I want us to do, and uh, there's, there's various people we could go to in Scripture who would help us see this, but the one I want to turn to is someone called Daniel. And Daniel's story, if you don't know it, uh, he, he lived about two and a half thousand years ago. He was captured by King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who then took him back to uh, the, the Babylonian Empire and the city of Babylon, the capital. And, um, and whilst Daniel was there, he's surrounded by the worship of other gods. He's surrounded by a culture that doesn't share his morality. And we might expect him as a young man to wither on the vine, as it were, with, a, with his faith. But instead what happens is his, his faith thrives. And it thrives 
And this is one of the things that I find fascinating about him, not because he withdrew from the culture he was in the middle of and just went into a bubble. He's right at the heart of it. He ends up running the government of Babylon, effectively. And yet somehow, in the midst of that culture, his, his trust in God just blossomed, and he ended up affecting and changing the world around him. And that's my question, is how can we do that? As we live in a culture that increasingly does not share our values, increasingly doesn't um, like even, or is hostile towards our beliefs, how might we thrive? So, um, let me just start by reading a little from Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. Then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, uh, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, I want to suggest that there are two attacks that Satan used against Daniel and that he uses against us. And the first is from this moment really early on in Daniel's story when he's a young man and he's just arrived in Babylon. The first attack that Satan comes at him with is the attack of seduction. Seduction. Um, it's hard to imagine, but try if you can to think of you've just left a war-torn, destroyed, demoralized Jerusalem where you've been under siege for three years. And you're brought into the heart of the Babylonian Empire, a city that oozes wealth, that, that just speaks of, it is the most powerful city in the world at this point. The architecture was beyond belief. The, the seven hangings of, you know, hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Daniel arrives in the city, he's a prisoner of war, and yet what happens is one of the first things is that they're assigned, uh, from verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. This is not prison rations. This is the best food in the world. So think, you know, I don't know, slow-cooked lamb that's been roasting on, you know, a really low heat for a long time so the meat is just falling off the bone. Or think of like a beautiful steak burger with triple-cooked fries. If, if you're a vegetarian, think of a really crunchy pepper. A perfectly boiled carrot. But like just the most incredible. If Waitrose and M&S had a baby, this is the food they would sell. It's incredible. And uh, they're suddenly offered the best food that Babylon has to offer. And what happens is Daniel says, I I'm not going to take it. I he resolves not to defile himself, we're told, with the food and wine from the king's table. And of course, the question is why? Why would he do that? And on one level, it's a very simple matter of obedience for him. The, the, the food laws of the Jews said this food is not clean, so he's simply in a case of he's just obeying the law. But going on beneath it, I want to suggest, is something deeper. And um, it's, a, it's a good thing to just ponder, why would Nebuchadnezzar offer them this food in the first place? Nebuchadnezzar is a ruthless dictator. He's not suddenly become soft when they turn up. Uh, he's not offering them food in order to be kind. This is not an act of generosity. What it is, is it's an act of seduction. 
It's an act of manipulation. Um, he's captured their bodies. Now what he wants to do is he wants to capture their souls. He wants to capture their hearts as well. It's like he holds out his hand and says, hey, hey boys, come and eat the food right here out of the palm of my hand. He's trying to create a generation that are literally eating from the palm of his hand. That are, because his plan was to rule his empire with people that he took from provinces and then sent back. He wants to create a, a group of leaders who are Jewish on the outside, but inside they're Babylonian. Um, put another way, he wants to knit their spirits to the Babylonian empire and to the Babylonian cause. Now we have an enemy who is doing the same thing to us, the people of Jesus today. And what he tries to do, the first attack he comes at us with is the one of seduction. It's this, this appeal to our desires that we would, as Jesus' people, so indulge ourselves in the best that the world has to offer, that although on the surface we are Christian, inside we're of the world. Inside we belong to the kingdom uh, of our enemy. And he doesn't need to destroy us if he can just distract us. Um, and uh, one of the things that makes this attack so deadly is that it's not just bad things, sinful things that Satan uses in order to get us. It can be good things. And we live in a world of good things, and that's something we can be thankful for. Thank God for the day that Ben met Jerry. Praise the Lord for the invention of Amazon Prime. These things are amazing, right? So it's not that all these things are evil, but what can happen, and this happens to, I would suggest, all of us at different points. It certainly happens to me, is that so often those things that we consume after a while, begin to consume us. And one question that we can ask ourselves is, is this sinful? Which is another way of saying, can I get away with it? Is it legal? Am I allowed before God? But there's another question which many of us don't ask, and I know I've avoided it at times, which is not, is this sinful, but is this helpful? You know, if I'm to be all in for him, heart, soul, mind, if I'm to be all in for you, is this helping me? And uh, we're set up to fail on so many counts because of the culture, the water that we swim in. So social media is probably the greatest example of distraction. I cannot be the only person, please let me not be, who's ever sat on the toilet, opened up Instagram, and left 45 minutes later. Um, I, you know, Netflix is like this trap that you watch one thing... And you know, they used to have like a 10-second countdown. Do you remember the days of the 10-second countdown? Now it's just a line that goes, and the next episode has begun. YouTube is like a whole load of, of, of rabbit holes that you can go down and spend hours in. We're set up totally to be distracted. It doesn't happen in an overt way. It happens in a covert way. It happens almost subtly, so much that we don't even notice it when it's happening. But a great question to ask is, where have I, where have I maybe got the balance wrong? Is it possible that something that's good has become for me something that's ultimate, something that's supreme? Is it possible that, that this good thing has allowed me to become too knit to the world around me? And what can I do about that? Um, you know, for me, I mean, I, how is it possible that I spend so much time doing these things that are not bad and so little time staring at his face? How can it be that I can obsess and I can find myself obsessing about how do I get more? How does my life become better? How can I grow? And so, so little of my attention on who can I bless and where can I give? Um, and what can help in, in moments like this is to copy the example of Daniel, which is he stepped away. There's this word that's really unpopular in our day and age, abstinence. Whoa. 
this idea of self-denial, self-restraint. In, in, in a culture of self-indulgence and self-expression, it jars with us, doesn't it? But it's, another way of putting it is fasting. This is the season of Lent, the season of fasting. And, um, and where are those places where, you know what, that might be a good idea for me right now. There's a friend of mine who, um, she's really into her fashion. And as you can tell by my plain white t-shirt, I too am a victim of fashion. Um, but she, she just felt like, do you know what, for me, clothes have become, there's nothing wrong with having nice clothes. But it just became, to, it just dominated her mind more than she was comfortable with after a while. So she decided, I'm going to step back. And she, she took a whole year out of buying any new clothes. She said to herself, if I need something, I'll get it from a charity shop. And it was a little statement for her, a little way of her unknitting herself from the world in order to be closer, just open her spirit up again to, to God. Daniel took a step back, and we see that there's a, a, a trial period um, that he makes an agreement with. I haven't got time to read the whole story. Ten days later, he looked healthier and stronger than anybody else because there's a spiritual strength that comes from a practice like this. And uh, knowing how to sort of step out of, the, of, of things that are not helpful but still be involved is an art form. And it's a tightrope that as Jesus' people, we're always going to have to walk in this world. And um, I remember for me, one of the key learning times on that was when I was a student at university. And some of you have heard me say this, but I'll repeat it anyway. I, I played a lot of sport at university, not very well. Um, but a lot of my friends were into sport, and we, um, they were in a drinking society, the Sports Drinking Society. And they asked me one day if I wanted to join it. And um, I, I, I was a Christian, I, I drank alcohol, but I didn't get drunk. And so I said to them, I'd love to join, but you just need to know that I don't get drunk. Um, I'm a follower of Jesus, and so I don't get drunk. So I'm happy to have a beer, but that'll probably be about it. And they would go out and just get completely hammered. And um, they said, oh, that's fine, but you will need to, if you're going to join the society, you will need to do the initiation. And uh, I, I thought about it for a bit, and I just went back to them and said, would it be possible for me to do the initiation, but to do it with milk instead of with alcohol? And I realized when they smiled and looked at each other that I just made a horrible mistake. Um, and I turned up to the initiation, which I was expecting to be sort of like a half hour drink a pint of milk. Um, and it, turned, it was this three and a half hour marathon. Every guy in the drinking society set their own challenge. We turned up and they gave me, you know, two pints of milk just to drink as a warm up where everyone else was just drinking pints of beer. And then they had all these different challenges. So one of them was like they had a bucket of alcohol and in my case, just lots of milk. And you had to drink a shot. And then there was a beep test. So if, you, if you've ever done the beep test, you run between these beeps. It just gets quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. And you have to drink and run and drink and run and drink and run. Well, I discovered at that point that your stomach cannot take anywhere near as much milk as it can alcohol. Because I started throwing up before anybody else was throwing up at all. And I continued to throw up for the next few hours. And another guy, his challenge was they took delight in coming up with the worst things they could. His challenge was he had like one of these um, smoothie makers and he put raw meat in it and then, and then alcohol um, or for me, milk. And so, um, but what was happening is everybody else was drunk by this point. So they were drinking that smoothie, but they were hammered. I was stone cold sober and I was having to drink the raw meat and milk and then vomit it back up again. Um, so it went on and on. Anyway, we could spend the rest of the time talking about it. But, and I remember turning up to see Beth. We were dating by this stage. And I was three hours late to see her covered in my own vomit. But I was the stone-cold sober new member of a drinking society. And that, that place for me became a, a place where I could 
be in people's lives and, and genuinely love them where they were at and hopefully share Jesus. Now, I got all sorts of things that I didn't do very well, but that, that was the ambition. And this kind of wrestle is one that is normal for us. It's always going to be in the culture that we're in. So um, it's being aware of the attack of seduction that comes and recognizing there are some things that are obviously for us off limits. And there are other times where maybe for a season I need to step back from this because it's just, it's got too much of a grip on me. That was the first attack that Daniel faced and overcome. Here was the second. Um, and this, if we fast forward in, in his life, which is an amazing story, the story of his life, we get towards the end. And by this point, um, there's a new regime. Nebuchadnezzar died a long time ago, and, and a new king has come to the throne, and he's called Darius. And he recognizes Daniel's potential, and he promotes him, or he intends to promote him to the supreme sort of like position in the empire. But Daniel's enemies don't like this idea, his rivals, and so they gang up on him. And they work out that Daniel is so trustworthy that the only thing they're going to be able to trap him on is if they can have, get something to do with his God. If we can get him on something to do with his God, they reckon they can take him down. And so they trick the king, Darius, into issuing a law. And the law says that for 30 days, no one is allowed to pray to any God apart from him, Darius the king. And they know that I'll do Daniel because they know that Daniel will only pray to his God. And so they, uh, they issue it. And then sure enough, what happens is Daniel goes, let me read it to you. This is, this is what happens straight away, all right? Now, and the death, there's a death sentence that goes with the law, which is if you, if, you do, if you break it, you're going to be fed to the lions, basically. You're going to become cat food. So Daniel 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. And they ended up having him thrown into the den of lions. So, so that, I love it. That is a special type of disobedience. It's like the law is issued. You must not pray to your God. Penalty, be feed to the cats, right? And then as soon as it's issued... Daniel goes home, opens up his windows, gets down on his knees, and he starts praying straight off the bat. And um, one of the things that strikes me about this is if you want to pray secretly, it's not that difficult. Isn't that one of the few things you probably can do without anybody ever knowing? You can pray quietly in your head, right? You can, you can be walking down the street. I could be praying right now and you wouldn't know. But he doesn't go for the MI6, kind of like, I'm going to pray in a secret espionage way. He goes back to the same place at the same time. He opens up his windows really wide so anyone can spy on him. And then he's caught, deliberately caught, because he knows they're coming for him. He breaks it intentionally. This is something where he will not be intimidated. He'll stand for it, whatever the cost. And the thing with seduction is it goes for our desires. But with intimidation, it comes after our fear. And the, the, the first one is, you know what? Eat this food. It's delicious. You'll love it. The second one is, if you don't do this, you will become the food. We will eat you. The first is an invitation that we'll get from our culture to conform, to knock rock the boat, to just go the way everyone is going. It's a gentle invitation. But you know what happens when we refuse that invitation? It's not another gentle invitation. It's a pressure to conform. It's a pressure to bend the knee. And it can be scary. We're told here that, that, you know, 
Daniel's three friends are not mentioned at this point. We don't know what's happened to them, but it's just him. And everybody's out to get him. And for many of us, one of the hardest parts of being a Christian can be the fact that we're the only one in our family. Or we're the only one in the office. We're the only one in the playground. We're the only one. And and intimidation and fear comes in many forms. Sometimes it's an overt threat. Oftentimes it's just a quiet fear of missing out. Fear of being thought of as weird. But, But we can be intimidated because we're living in a culture that doesn't follow Jesus in the way that we do. And what are we going to do? You know, what Daniel does is he takes a stand. And I remember um, talking to a friend of mine who's a very wealthy and successful, he is a wealthy and successful businessman. And I asked him, how do you manage to cope in the environment you're in? How do you manage to, you know, deal with all all the pressure that will come your way? And his response kind of took me aback. He just said to me, "You've you've got to work out what you're willing to die for. And what he meant by that is not just that we're going to die for Jesus in the sense that, of course, we're all called to that, but just in this particular environment that I am in, what are the things that I am going to stand for? Some of them will be things that I'm going to stand against, but many of them will be things that I'm going to stand for, whatever the cost to me. At this moment, Daniel's standing for praying to the one true God. And the, the risk is it's going to cost him not just his reputation and his position of power, but his very life. So for us, to live in the opposite spirit of the world around us, what does it look like? Mike has told a story for many years, and I know the guy he's talking about, a friend of ours called David, who he um, got a job in an office, and the office was a nasty place to be. It was full of backbiting and gossip, and it was horrible. And he was praying one day, and he said to the Lord, you've got to get me out of this place. And he felt like the Lord said to him, no, I've put you there for a reason. Um, I want you to change the culture. Live in the opposite spirit. And so he was trying to work out how to do that. And one day he decided the way he was going to try and change the culture, where it was backbiting and gossiping, is he, uh, he went to the supermarket early one day. He bought loads of boxes of chocolates. And then he went into the office and he went around to different people's desks and he hid in their desks a box of chocolates. You know, one in a drawer, one under, in somebody's in tray under a pile of papers or whatever. And then he hid one in his own desk, in his own drawer. And then he, 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 he came into work with everybody else. And after a little while, everybody's sitting there. And one person opens a drawer and says, oh, there's a, there's a box of chocolates in my desk. Does somebody give this to me? And, you know, nobody says anything. And then someone else is like, oh, I found a box of chocolates in my desk. And then David, after a little while, is like, oh, there's a box of chocolates in my desk. Who put this in here? And, uh, and he said, as, as, as little a thing as that seems, it, ch- it did something to change the atmosphere in that office. No one wants to be rude to the person who may have bought them chocolates. He chose to live in the opposite spirit. There's a guy who started the Entertainer Toy Shops. I don't know if you've ever been to those. They're in Watford High Street and all over the place now. Gary Grant. And he's a follower of Jesus. And um, he was trying to work out as an entrepreneur, what does it look like to live in the opposite spirit of our culture? And and this isn't for everybody, but for him, he felt like the Lord said, I want you to give 10% of your profits away to charity. And he also felt like the Lord said, I don't want you to open your shops on Sundays. So that's what he, he doesn't. So the entertainer toy shops are not open on Sundays. And the pressure to compromise, he would say, has been great at different times. When, you're, when your profits look slim, 10% is a big chunk to give away. Um, when the biggest trading days of the year happen to fall on Sundays, the temptation to open is pretty big. But he's, he's chosen to take a stand, although it costs him, and it does. Uh, a church of ours that's led, led 
Trent Vineyard. Um, Debbie Wright was here a couple of weeks ago speaking at NSN, and uh, they're great friends of ours. It's one of the churches I admire most in the country because of, because of their generosity, because of the stand they take on that. So when they started as a church, John and Debbie, who started it, felt like the Lord spoke to them about being a church for the poor. And particularly where that was rooted for them is they decided they're going to give away 20% of their church's income to serving the poor. And over the years, the pressure to not do that has been big at different times. There was one time in 2008 when the financial crisis happened, giving to charity was dropping like a stone, and the temptation was to give away less than 20%, but they prayed about it, and they felt like the Lord said to increase what they gave. So they increased it from 20% to 22%. And, uh, and there have been other moments where they've had to raise millions of pounds for a building. And times like that, every penny matters. And they felt as part of those campaigns, and again, this isn't for everybody, but specifically for them in their circumstances before God, they felt like the Lord said, you're to give 20% of whatever is raised for buildings. You're going to let people know it's going to be given away to serve the poor. And so over the years, they have given away millions of pounds. Um, they had a meeting a few years ago with the Nottingham Council the local council, and they were able to say to them, as a church, we would like to give you, the council, £100,000 to invest and to serve the poor in Nottingham. And the councillors were like, who the heck are these people that they would want to bless in that way? What does it look like for us to live in the opposite spirit, to take a stand for something, though it costs us, that in a culture where it's me first, we put others first? In a culture where, where it's, it's the temptation is just to indulge our appetites, we live in a, in a way that expresses purity. Um, in a culture where we cancel people because they made a mistake, where we become the people of the second chance, the people of the third and the fourth and the fifth chance, this is what it looks like. Years after Daniel, 550 years actually, Jesus was born. In that 550 year gap, Satan's tactics had not changed very much. He comes to Jesus, first attack, seduction. Hey, Jesus, um, why don't you turn those stones into bread? Hey, Jesus, you see all the kingdoms of the world? Come and take them out of the palm of my hand. All you've got to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus resists, notably at a time when he's fasting. Here's a second attack, intimidation. You need to bow the knee to me or you're going to be crucified. And what Jesus says is he goes to his father and pray, even as Daniel does. And he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And he stands his ground. And for us, as we live out the the life and the expression of Jesus, it's doing the same thing. And it's not easy, but here's where, for me, I have to land it every single time, which is that I am not doing this in my own strength. I'm doing it with you, my brothers and sisters, that we might encourage each other and cheer each other on. And we're doing it with him, our God and Father, who's gone ahead of us, who's already crushed and defeated the Satan who attacks us, and who lives to guide us and to guard us and to help us and to steer us and to empower us and to embolden us as he sends us out like sheep among wolves to live for his kingdom and for his glory. Some of this is what Satan is doing. The way to resist is to recognize where he's kind of got us a little bit too much involved in certain things that are not helping in our relationship with him. And then in other things, it's to say, though it costs me everything, I will not be budged on this thing that you've called me to, my God.